Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone. Today we have J.S. Nelson. J.S. has spent nearly 10 years teaching at top universities across the country, including Wharton and Stanford. She also worked as a deputy district attorney and as a business litigator in Denver, Colorado. I'm sure many listeners now hoping, uh, wishing that you were their friend and they could reach out to you with their legal questions. Professor Nelson is a graduate of Harvard Law School and earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science with honors from Yale University. Welcome, JS. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a delight to be here. JS, could you share with us your journey? How did you end up where you are today and how you became so interested in business ethics? Business ethics is something that should be everyone's topic. <laughs> I think we all touch it in our own ways. And it's certainly a very present part of our lives and the way we think of ourselves in so many other ways. We think of ourselves as ethical people. We think of ourselves as embedded in communities and in families. And we want to believe that we are doing the right thing. Um, it's very important when we look in the mirror and we see who that person is, that we like that person. We can literally have a disgust response to yourself if you are not doing what you believe that you should be doing. And so in terms of talking about this, it's certainly something that a lot of different disciplines have been very involved in for a long time. So a lot of business ethics books tend to be siloed by discipline. So you'll see psychologists teach it uh, in a very certain way, blind spots or rational behavior or something else. Uh, you'll see economists teach it as, you know, rational behavior or irrational behavior. Uh, you'll see philosophers, um, you know, because we have a long, very beautiful uh, tradition of talking about ethics, talk about it from that tradition. Um, and, and also religions talk about ethics. And lawyers will talk about ethics too. Lawyers will talk about ethics. Sometimes compliance is a very basic floor. And then the, our aspirations should be above that. We should want to engage in pro-social behavior and feel good about what we're doing. Um, beyond the letter of the law, there's the spirit of the law and, and pro-social behavior. So um, as my co-author and I were looking at the landscape on business ethics, it seemed as though there wasn't a book that put all of these different perspectives together and really helped show all the different pieces of business ethics and what people need to know in the workplace. So as we were putting this book together, we we're really thinking from the point of view of somebody trying to use this book. So Strategy Skills is a great podcast to be talking to people on because you guys are really interested in using the skills that we're talking about, using the material and making a difference in your everyday life. And this book is really targeted to the population that's thinking, what do I do with this? I have all of this maybe information uh, that I've soaked up through all these different disciplines and through life, but 
what happens when I'm given an unethical order in the workplace? What happens when I see unethical behavior? What happens when these when I'm really living this and this happens and I need to figure out how to react to it? And so that was the purpose of this book. That's where it was born. Um, my co-author, I need to, to just introduce briefly of uh, she passed in the course of writing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was very near and dear to her heart as well. She spent her career talking to people, business people, all kinds of people about what the law says, how they can act within the law, what what it means to have these rules and live by these rules, not as a dead set of compliance measures or checklists or something else, but in terms of laws shape society and our decisions shape society and what kind of society do we want to live in? And that should really be front and center for people. It sounds very abstract, but it's very tangible. It's absolutely something that should be part of our skill set. And we we create the society we live in. Um, and we're not just shaped by it, but we help shape it. Um, and our actions every day in life contribute to that. We have more power than we know. And that's a really important message that I wanted this book to convey. And she wanted this book to convey. Jason, how would you define business ethics? So business ethics is both very old and very new. Uh, business ethics, certainly, we've had thinkers as far back as certainly the spoken word, who have talked about how to behave toward each other in society. And as we sort of had, as we have more and more transactions in society, how we behave toward each other can revolve around those transactions. Those can be personal transactions, but the personal becomes the professional too. We we are spending vast amounts of our days in professional settings, in commerce, in all kinds of um, provisions of goods and services. And so we need to think about who we are in those situations as well. And so I don't actually see a big distinction between personal ethics and business ethics. And that's a that's an important point for your readers that has to go to that initial point about being able to look in the mirror and not have two separate people look back at you. We see some very dangerous ethical behaviors start to take place as people separate their personal lives from their professional lives too much um, and in fact allow certain things to happen in their professional lives that they would never accept in their personal lives. So we're talking about reintegrating business ethics as a concept into something that you would recognize more as your own personal ethics as well. It just happens to maybe take place in the context of providing of a good and service or within an organizational format. But And so it does have different twists to it as well. Um, we, we do have a lot of science about the behavior of how people behave at work, which can be a bit different than when they think that they're in a personal setting. But it really shouldn't be in many important ways. You mentioned earlier a situation where someone is asked to do something unethical at work. Let's say they're at the manager level. So they're not completely junior, but there are a lot more senior people above them. And they are afraid to lose their job and they're not sure what to do. How would you recommend them approach this situation? This is the really important where the rubber hits the road set of questions. I'm so glad we're getting to this. So in terms of strategy skills, in terms of what we're thinking about how you use this, we have a whole bunch of very specific recommendations. Um, We really walk people through in the book about how to gather information, how to figure out the legal context of where they are and what's happening, um, how to report 
this behavior and it and and you have a whole you have a whole bunch of determinations um, to be made how are you going to report to whom are you going to report what are you going to report when are you going to report in what format you know and so we really our book helps guide readers through a lot of that and that can be very different by industry it can be very different by how your organization is set up the basic principles would be to get as much information as you can first and figure out what the rule is that has been broken and what the repercussions would be so who enforces that rule and why is this an something that that um, a trade associated would be most interested in? Is this some, you know, is there something that, is this something that, you know, uh, is, is, is a regulatory body would be most um, interested in um, because it has a health or safety component? What is this thing that is, um, that I need to report? And then that will also help me figure out to whom do I need to report it and how. Um, we also have a whole segment in the book about, you know, 92% of whistleblowers actually report internally first before going to the government, even though actually the law is that you have more protection when you go to the government than when you report internally by far. So why are they doing that? They're doing that because often people who are moved to report misconduct are moved to do so for moral reasons. They're not necessarily looking for a payday. In fact, a lot of them will say that there's no way in which the amount that they were ever compensated can make up for, um, you know, what they went through. But they're they're moved. They they tend to be very moral, principled individuals. They're exactly the people that we want inside corporations. They're exactly the people we need to keep inside corporations. And so there's a whole uh, system, and we talk about it in the book. But this is Mary Gentili's system. Um, Dr. Gentili's developed uh, giving voice to values, which is uh, how to you know, literal techniques on how to speak truth to power. So some of her suggestions, um, which are very scientifically uh, based and, and have been have been worked on for a very long time, are to, um, to articulate exactly what the problem is uh, for yourself, then think about the counters that you're going to hear back, right? What are the objections? What are the rationalizations? Oh, well, everybody does it this way. Oh, well, this is a business necessity. We have to do it this way. You know, oh, well, you know, we, whatever it is, there are going to be a series of rationalizations to be able to think about how to counter those rationalizations, practice what you're going to say, literally practice it in front of a mirror and be prepared for the counters, be prepared for what language you're going to use. Start thinking about the language of ethics too. This is a very important thing, not just, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it this way, but is this who we are? Is this how we want to be doing things? Maybe we have other alternatives. Let's talk about that. Of we have choices in this situation. Paying attention to your identity as a company, as individuals, and tying yeah. it to identity. That can be very helpful. That can be very helpful because if a company put forward, puts forward a mission statement and says, this is who we are, that needs to be backed up. Otherwise, it becomes wallpaper. There's a lot of studies on, on mission statements that just become wallpaper. But if a company is serious about articulating its values and saying, this is what we value and this is how we value it, and sending that message out, then you can speak to those values. You can say, you know what? We say we're a company that stands for this. We can stand for that. How do we stand for that? You know, maybe we have this choice. And we could do this instead of this. We could do that, that instead of the other thing. And you're always going to have countervailing arguments coming back. Well, you know, we have economic pressures. We have this, we have this. Yes, but who, who are we? 
Like, what, what, how do we, how do we plan to do this? And maybe there, and, and think things through so that you give people outs. You don't want to necessarily corner people because you want to bring people to your side. You're having a conversation, you're calling to the best of whoever you're talking to and you're saying, join me, join me in thinking this through for us. We can find a solution. Jason, what would be your recommendation for companies who want to improve the level of um, behavior of their employees? So they want business ethics to be important when they recruit new people to join the organization. What would you recommend they pay attention to? Well, I think this is a little bit, this is a really good point for, for this podcast to talk about because this isn't a... I just hire the right people and I leave them alone. That's a recipe for ethical disaster, right? Ethics is more of, and this is something that Linda Trevino, um, another researcher has, has really worked on and, and her analogy, but I really like it a lot, which is ethics is a garden. You have to tend the garden. You have to plant things and you have to tend them over time. Something's going to grow there. <laughs> now, whether it's what you want or not, right, has everything to do with how you've come back to that garden and what you have cultivated literally as your culture. So if you are thinking about um, how how do we grow a culture, how do we how do we create an ethical culture? Yes, you hire people. But it's a disaster if you ever hear a CEO say, I just hire great, great people and I leave them alone. Like that's a company that's going to go off the ethical cliff. That's a disaster waiting to happen, right? What you have to do is you have to walk the walk and talk the talk. You have to actually bring up ethics in meetings. You have to, um, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can actually um, signal all kinds of ways um, that you, uh, you can, the stories that you tell. Do you tell the story of the, a customer service agent who went the extra mile and gave something back to a customer? Well, that would be an interesting one, right? That would be very different than telling the story of the customer servant who customer service agent who was able to nickel and dime somebody for a plan that they didn't need or didn't want, right? How, how you recognize people, what you highlight as the things that you like from your people, and, um, and, and not just setting goals, but thinking about how people are getting to those goals. Sometimes goal setting can actually create misconduct because the goals are wildly unrealistic and the pressure to get to them is so unrealistic that what you are actually signaling is cheat. There's no other way. And we've known since the 1950s that every time you set a quota and you tell people you must meet this quota and you don't actually look to how that's done and um, and whether it's a reasonable metric, you are telling people to cheat. So how you set up incentive systems, um, what you do with people once they're actually inside your company, how you how you create those processes, what you're telling them, that is really the, the growing of the garden. And so I would say what we're discovering in business ethics, and this is a big takeaway for your listeners, is it's not bad apples or even bad barrels, it's bad management of the orchard. It's you put people in situations and you will get behavior and we can pretty much do that to anyone. There are very few people who are completely immune to, yes, there are some true bad apples and we think that about seven, eight percent of the population will cheat no matter what, that they're, they're hardcore cheaters. You definitely want to screen those people out, but, you know, and there are, there's some other part of the population and the numbers are not nearly as good on this, maybe two to three percent at the most less um who will always do the right thing they're very rigid they're not influenced by social pressure 
they can be some of the most difficult people on the face of the earth, right? But they're always going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But if you take the 7% and the, you know, the 7, 8%, and the 2 to 3%, you have 10%. So what we're doing is we're, we're managing for the 90%, right? The 90% in the middle are going to be tremendously swayed by the situations that you put them in and the expectations that you articulate of them. And so we have an enormous ability to manage ethics. We absolutely can do this, but this has got to be something that's got to be managed just like any other part of your business. And what are some of the key mistakes you are seeing in how management manages that garden? Yeah, well, definitely this idea of, oh, I don't need to talk about ethics. Ethics will just manage itself. No, you'll get the behavior that you, that you grow, right? And, and also, you know, this idea of staying really hands off it means that um, almost every criminologist will tell you that the way to get the behavior that you want is to intervene early and often. So with small transgressions, you would say something, right? It doesn't have to be a death sentence. It can be just, you know, hey, we don't do things that way. Or, hey, you know, how about instead of doing it this way, we do it this way. If you catch somebody really early, it also the biology, um, the biological findings here support this. The amygdala, um, the fear center of the brain will light up the first time that somebody transgresses, right? And it, even for very small transgressions, they're worried. They're, they're thinking, uh-oh, I, I did something wrong. I'm wondering what will happen, right? And they're watching for the signals then. And if that's caught, it's corrected, they don't go down that road again. They tend not to, right? You, you may have to correct a couple more things, little things later on, but, but by and large, that's where it stays. And then that, that person is a really helpful part of the organization, right? They, that's what management is supposed to do, correct and, and, and bring us along to where we need to be for the organization. The problem begins with something that, that researchers call the ethical slide. It's also called the snowball effect, right? Mm -hmm. And it's when that first set of transgressions isn't remarked upon, isn't caught, isn't isn't uh there's no there's no feedback going on and so the transgressions get bigger and bigger and bigger and we have an ethical slide into really big transgressions and not only that but you're now showing everybody within your organization that this is the behavior that's okay and so more and more people start to say well that person was rewarded for that behavior well you know if they cheat on their you know sales reports if they cheat on their you know, statistical finding, if they cheat and they're rewarded, well, then why shouldn't I do it that way? That's so much easier than actually, you know, walking through the hard part of getting those sales done, right? Of those sales done and the rest of it. Um, and so what you find is that there are these snowball effects and that, you know, if you don't catch ethics early and you don't have the conversation about ethics as being a part of the job, as being something that needs to be an, ex, you know, is an expected part of the conduct, then you get these really big scandals. So I've done research into the Volkswagen scandal, which incubated possibly 17 years inside that company um, and, you know, survived engine redesigns over 10 years and multiple models. Like, I mean, this was big. This was coordinated across suppliers. It was coordinated across different parts of the teams, you know, hundreds of miles apart. This had been going on for a while, right? This got bigger and bigger and bigger. And it was a big lie. And, you know, the engineers knew that there was no such thing as clean diesel. And it, it you know, but this was what 
was being pushed and this is what we had to get on board. And there's a expression about Volkswagen um, that it was North Korea without labor camps. And you can get people to do pretty extraordinary things with that kind of pressure on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so think about the, the, the quality of the environment that you're creating and what that means. Um, I'd also say, um, as you look at, at Wells Fargo, another company that had, you know, uh, 5,300 people fired for exactly the same behavior, you know, they could have known that much earlier, right? See those patterns, realize that this is a problem, intervene much earlier, deal with this. Those weren't 5,300 bad apples, you know, arbitrarily. That was a system that was pressuring people to do this. And then you start to see that it wasn't just fraudulent accounts. It was, you know, mortgage signing. It was taking advantage of veterans. It was, you know, selling securities that they didn't understand that were too risky for customers. It went on and on and on and on. And you're seeing the same thing happen at Boeing, right? It's not just the 737 MAX airplanes. It's now production issues with other, you know, planes that the regulators don't trust Boeing and Boeing's misrepresented other things. And it's so these things tend to grow and they fester and they become not just one particular issue in one fire, but once the whole thing's on fire, it's a huge cluster of all kinds of things. And it's been going on way too long. Yes, I think we need to spend enough time in this discussion to focus on how business ethics can be competitive advantage for one's career and also how business ethics can be competitive advantage for an organization. So maybe let's start from an individual perspective. What would you say to them? I'm trying to address a concern of some people that if I'm always acting in an ethical way, then I may be at a disadvantage at a competitive disadvantage versus other people I'm competing with within the organization. What would be your response? Your response would be, this is often the way that people justify or rationalize unethical behavior. Everyone else is doing it. I have to do it to get ahead. And I would say a couple of things about that. One, that's a very short-term perspective versus a long-term perspective. And if you're in your career long-term, Adam Grant's research, many other people's research shows that it's people who are ethical, who develop reputations, who help other people, who become the people that, you know, organizations want, other people want to be around. That's far more powerful over the course of a career. That's that's how you really get ahead in a, in a very strategic way. And there's plenty of research now showing that. So, you know, you got to decide, do you want to be a short-term flash in the pan and dance with legal liability <laughs> and, the, and the serious end of your career <laughs> and or disciplinary action and the, the reputation of being a cheater? Um, I mean, one thing that's really interesting is, so um, I'll just throw this, this, this data in there because it's not just me talking about this and saying, you know, <laughs> it's a smart strategy to be ethical. You know, this is the strategy skills podcast. You, you guys need data to back this up. And there's a lot of really interesting data as you actually. So one of the, the it, issues about studying business ethics is how do you study bad behavior without actually people knowing that you're studying their bad behavior, right? Because you could change the experiment by, by doing that. So there are these fascinating experiments that have been done on online gaming communities where you can watch people's behavior without them knowing that they're being watched. And there are some huge online gaming communities and these studies have been, these findings have been replicated in other places. Um, but 
it's very interesting to watch what happens to cheaters because they get labeled and other people shun them. And then cheaters attract other cheaters. And so you start to see, it's like a, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, the vast majority of people do not want to be associated with cheaters. They don't want to be around cheaters. They will actually, you know, disengage from them in online systems, all kinds of things. They'll see this behavior and they'll shun it. So what happens is those cheaters tend to to group with other cheaters and tend to be removed from the vast majority of the community. So what does that mean? If we, we had those numbers from before, that about seven to eight percent of the population consistently, you know, they they're the hardcore cheaters. You know, they're they're, they're there, but they becomes just that seven to eight percent only interacting with themselves um, in online communities and in other ways in which we can study this, where we can't be seen where they can't see us studying it, right? <laughs> Very important point. You want, you, you want to see that behavior in the wild, right? Um, so I would say that be careful because once you get labeled and part of that group, many people will not do business with you. They just won't. And, and it won't be, or it'll be, um, or it'll be on such onerous terms because, because they'll try to um, figure out all kinds of ways to write contracts, to punish you if you cheat. You know, I, the, the enforcement mechanisms on this um, become more and more difficult. You are not going to become a, a person that can do business on a handshake and move on. Whereas the people who know that you're the kind, you know, who do act ethically, they will group around each other. And that is the vast majority of the rest of the space, right? That it's everybody but the seven to 8%. So that's the 90, you know, <laughs> that's the 92 to 93%, right? And it would be much better to be able to, you know, exchange with them and be able to, you know, have them come seek you out, have them trust you, have them, you know, do deals on a handshake with you, have them, you know, understand and, and and be one of these repeat partners. So I would say on an individual level, this is actually really stark. This is, the, and there, and, and we can actually see people fail ethical tests and kind of fall out of that. Um, whereas people pass, pass ethical tests because other people are watching this behavior and they're watching it really closely um, and, and, and rise above that. So those tend to be these cutoff marks um, just in careers, you, you, you see that. Um, so you have to decide pretty early on, you know, who you're going to be because, you know, it, it takes a long time to build a reputation, but you can lose it, lose it really fast. Um, and your reputation ends up being one of your most valuable assets. I mean, precede you, it, it, it changes how people deal with you. It changes how people negotiate with you. It changes the terms on which you can get goods and services and products, jobs, all kinds of things, right? You, you want to have that. Um, that's of serious value. And then, um, and do you want me to start talking about organizations too? Or yes, you, yes. Okay. Um, in terms of organizations, the same kind of effects start to happen. So you'll see, for example, organizations treated very differently based on their past behavior and what people have come to expect of them. So for example, to take the Volkswagen, you know, example um, that we just talked about, after having lied to regulators for a series, you know, for all those years, regulate, you know, the regulators gave them 30 minutes warning about the big announcement to recall their cars, right? It's unheard of that you would give a company like this 30 minutes warning. 
and it's because the regulators have just had it with them. <laughs> you know, I mean, they don't they didn't trust them anymore. You know, when it came to looking at for violations, Volkswagen was going to be the first company they pull up on the list. They were going to look through their underwear. They were not going to, you know, I mean, it was going to be a really uncomfortable situation. And they were going to have to figure out how to turn around this 70 plus year old company that that no longer had a reputation. I mean, all those years of building goodwill, all the, you know, the Volkswagen bug and, you know, we love Herbie and, you know, every single piece of advertising that they had put in to become a company that people would trust with this clean diesel stuff was gone. And, and not only gone, but gone in this tremendously negative way that made them the butt of jokes and every meme. And I mean, it was, it was terrible, you know? Um, so, so you can, you know, as a company, you can talk about the loss of goodwill. You can talk about the, you know, your position vis-a-vis regulators constantly, your position, what's going to happen when people sue you because they're going to come find you. Like there are all these knock-on effects of what happens. And then also, you know, for some industries, lying about something really serious can mean that you literally can no longer do business in that industry. So for example, if you're convicted of healthcare fraud, you can no longer you know, work with the federal government, you can't get access to Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, like, literally, you're banned from the whole system. So um, these are not small issues. And, and, and for organizations, the problem is that they may not always understand the magnitude of them because of that effect of, of the snowballing and the clustering that we were talking about before. So this is really precarious, because if you don't decide that you're going to manage ethics and manage ethics early so that you're on top of this stuff, you can find yourself being the next Boeing where nobody, you know, I mean, there's a serious question, you know, do we want to order defense material from this company? Really? With this history going, you know, I mean, that's not a position you want to find yourself in and you want to be able to control your reputation and what happens to your company far before that happens but if you're not on top of this stuff it really can explode on you know it can feel like it, it's exploding on you so that you're just doing damage control at that point and you really haven't you know it's a very it's a very scary position to be in as a manager not knowing you know hearing that there's some kind of misconduct and not truly understanding how deep or how far it goes and what you know being being in damage control mode that's 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 terrible especially when it's your whole industry and your whole ability to function on the line it is. Jason, what would be the appropriate compliance and ethics program? What would it look like? Sure. Well, we walk through this in quite some detail in the book. And it's interesting because the Department of Justice, so there are organizational sentencing guidelines, which are put forward by the um, Sentencing Commission. And then in order to get cooperation credit, um, the Department of Justice is looking at your compliance program and thinking, okay, does this satisfy being able to say that the company was trying and and really managing these issues actively managing by the way this has really changed from do i have a process on paper and do i you know hang it up on the wall and i have a (laughs) a nice looking wallpaper which is my (laughs) corporate mission statement or do i live this right and the and the and the department of justice is actively looking at do we live this do we understand this do we put time, energy, resources into talking about ethics, living ethics, maintaining these systems, making sure that this is what is communicated throughout an organization. Because you've got to remember, um, you know, it's not just what happens in the C-suite. It's really 
what the experience is like of being inside an organization. If you think of those Wells Fargo bank employees, right, they're going into their regional bank branches every day. They may know who the CEO is, but they probably couldn't identify all the members of the board and, you know, who all the, you know, their experience is their boss, their manager. What, what, what does it feel like to work in that bank branch? You know, what, what, is, what does that mean on, on an everyday level? And has, it, has this idea of ethics and doing things properly really, or doing things that, that, that reflect who we are and the way we want to do them as a company, has it trickled down to the point where that's the language that that manager can talk about? Um, and that takes a lot of thinking about. That takes a lot of management, a lot of culture, a lot of adjustment, a lot of a lot of being comfortable with this language and using this language, not just having it be someplace at corporate headquarters and not not transmitted along all those lines to the people who are actually under the most pressure to get things done in the way that the company wants to see them done. The next question I wanted to ask you is probably something that some of the listeners and viewers want me to ask. And you are one of the few people who can answer this question. So what I wanted to ask you is, what are the major schools of philosophical ethical thought? And uh, how understanding of it can help our listeners and viewers think about business ethics and become better at being ethical? Sure. Well, let me first by saying I'm not a philosopher, so I have tremendous respect for philosophers. I work with philosophers. I learn from philosophers all the time, and that is definitely a process of, of, of learning and um, respecting thousands of years of, of deep thought that has come before. But just thinking about major schools of ethical thought and what we can pull from them. So um, I would say, you know, people should go take a philosophy class if they're really interested in this, because there's so much more than I can possibly represent here. But in thinking about um, virtue ethics, for example, from Aristotle going sort of from the farthest back, there's this idea of cultivating certain virtues, of cultivating certain pieces of who we are and who we want to be. And what those virtues are have actually changed over time. And maybe that's appropriate, you know, things that were appropriate in ancient Greece may not be the ones that we talk about today. So there's been some revision, you know, Aquinas definitely helped revise this. Um, so, so those have been brought forward to the modern day, but that's an idea, that's a, a way of thinking about cultivating, always cultivating yourself as a good human being or the, or the kind of human being that you want to be in the world and thinking about, do you have these qualities and do these qualities balance? For example, you know, um, you, you may have situations in with which certain virtues actually would dictate going in different directions, but can you, can you think about how you would make your way through that and still at the end of the day, think of yourself as a virtuous person? Um, so that's a, that's a really, really important school of thought. And it's, a, it, it definitely takes practice. It's, it's something, I, I will just flag that all of these schools of thought, um, one thing that'll really strike you or anybody working on them is just how how um, how engaged you have to be, how ethics is a an active process. It's you know I think that one of the big things that we have learned over time is that nobody just goes to pick your version of whatever 
formative ethical event that is Sunday school, Hebrew school, mosque, you know, temple, whatever it is, um, and gets vaccinated for ethics for the rest of their life. That, that is not the way this happens. Um, and if you think that's the way it <laughs> happens, then, you know, you're really setting yourself up because we have to think about ethics actively in different situations because the very situations can change how we react. So what we're finding is that you can put the same person in a different situation and get a different answer from the same person on the same question. And let me let me say it. so for example if you if you approach someone on the steps of a church mosque synagogue whatever it is and ask them for a contribution the answer that to a charitable cause the answer that you may get in that setting with that framing could be a very different answer than if you ask that same person in the middle of the day on the trading floor right that same person being in a different location with a different set of issues you know frame around them um is, is going to give you a different answer. So that means if you want to be the kind of person who always consistently answers that question in a certain way by saying perhaps, yes, I will give to charity or yes, I will do this the right thing in this situation or whatever that is, then you need to actively make sure that your answer comports with who you are and who you want to be, even if it's the middle of the day on the trading floor, which is hard, right? That that takes a certain amount of of making sure that you own your ethics, that you're struggling with ethical questions as ethical questions and you label them as ethical questions, not just, you know, get out of my face, you know, it's busy and I have to do whatever I, you know, but really, oh my goodness, this is an ethical question. I now need to shift gears in the middle of the training floor, in the middle of a busy day to answer you differently. And that's one really nice thing is if you're always thinking about virtue ethics, for example, or any of these different ethical systems, if you actually keep these close and actually are working with these systems, then you're more likely to check yourself and give you give the answer that you would want to be the person, give the answer that you would want to be giving, given the person that you think you are or want to be. Um, you asked me about some of the other schools of thought. Would you like me to go through those? I would love that. Thank you. Okay. So then we have ethics of care, such as communitarianism. So this is um, one of the big critiques of uh, Aristotelian virtue ethics and, and some of these other um, versions of ethics is that they tend to be very focused on, on individuals, right? That I individually have to keep wrestling with my virtues and I have to do these other things. And they don't necessarily take into account that our obligations to other people um, and that we're embedded in a community and that we may be embedded in a family, we may be embedded in a society that has other expectations. And communitarianism and some other ethics of care really think about not just who I want to be, but what are my obligations vis-a-vis -vis other people, which is a very important like you know, do I have an obligation to respect my parents, treat my parents well? Do I have an obligation to my community that I understand in another way to respond and take care of people? And this is a really important point. And actually, this has been a point that um, I'm painting with a very broad brush. But, um, but you know, sometimes in, 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 in Eastern countries, um, they we'll talk about this as coming more naturally as a, as, a, as a starting ethical perspective, given the history of say Confucianism or some of these other um, big ideas about how, what our role should be in society. And there's a real critique of 
Western individualism and, you know, and, 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 and it seems as, it seems disrespectful not to see yourself as embedded in a society with obligations to other people. So th this is a resonated really well in the Western world. This has been something that, um, that some groups of feminists have really talked about because they talk about women as providing for other people and that that should be valued. And this idea of an ethic of care, you know, raising children, taking care of the elderly, better values women's contributions within society and, and holds them up. Um, there are critiques of that, but um, then there's sort of going back to the, to the Western tradition, we have ideas of cost benefit and utilitarianism, right? This is going to be more familiar to some of your uh, listeners because they may think in cost benefit analysis and you know, what's the upside, what's the downside? How do I, how do I make these trade-offs? Um, and so it seems to be more appealing because you can assign numbers to things, right? This, you know, these benefits are this amount and those costs are that amount and I can decide that the benefit outweighs the cost because this number is greater than the other number. But as you actually start thinking about how those numbers are assigned and what you actually know about the costs or benefits of any situation, we find that it can be very treacherous <laughs> because we're so bad at actually measuring costs and benefits and estimating costs and benefits. And we also don't see into the future very well. So we don't necessarily understand the full costs and benefits going forward of any particular action that we take today. We may not see that it you know, has this knock-on effect and that knock-on effect and the next knock-on effect. It also tends to reduce things down to what feels like very tangible numbers, but actually eliminates a lot of the sometimes deep moral questions about what's ethical and what's not ethical. So very classic utilitarian ideas of cost-benefit analysis have been um, have been attacked because, for example, you could justify slavery this way, right? It, it's it's a it's a benefit for a large number of people, but the and the cost would be on a small minority. But that is ethically unpalatable. It's just never like you could, with cost benefit analysis, argue that that should be something that should exist in the world. But because the cost benefit analysis does not allow for an ethical, you know, lens in there. The, the, the classical cost-benefit analysis does not allow for the ethical lens. You can get really horrific results. You know, I should kill this person because blah, blah, you know, I like really, really um, dangerous results. Um, so there are more modern versions of utilitarianism where they try to add some of these moral questions back in. I mean, so people will will keep tinkler, tinkering with that formula, but it's got a basic problem at its, at its root that I'm not sure how many iterations can solve. And so as you're in a business context and you're being asked to do a cost benefit analysis, please keep that in mind. <laughs> that, um, that how you assign these numbers and that and 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 by assigning numbers to things, you may be losing a lot of that the ethical questions at the heart of whatever is going on, the real morality of the situation. Um, then there are rights, duties, rationales, such as Kant's categorical imperative, which starts with ideas of, you know, absolute commandments, you know, for example, you know, these, a categorical imperative would be, you know, some rule that you want everyone to abide by, like, never lie, right, or, so, or do not kill people, or whatever it is, is this idea of you would be ruled by these categorical imperatives. And that sounds very clean and simple, because, it's got a certain, 
it's got a certain um, attractiveness to it that, okay, we know what the rules are. We know how to follow the rules. We know what to do, but you can really get yourself into some more ethical quandaries. Um, for example, you may have to lie sometimes to save someone's life. You may have to lie sometimes to um, protect dissidents to, you know, there, there are all kinds of ways. Or what if you have to lie to someone on a deathbed if they ask you whether they look good? Because, you know, that could be a compassionate lie, but yet you may have this categorical imperative that you don't lie. So anyway, those are very, very simple critiques of, of, of that idea, you can get very much more sophisticated, but this idea that there are these bright line rules places can be can be really attractive, but can also create situations where you could, again, run into issues that, you know, if you were to ask morally, say back with Aristotle's formula of balancing virtues, that might not be what a virtuous person would want to do, right? Um, finally, I would say there are distributive justice rationales, like Rawlsian principles. Um, John Rawls was a philosopher who you know, was within our lifetimes and um, had this idea that you could, there, there are different pieces of this idea, but I think it's fair to boil it down to, um, if you think about how we treat the least powerful in our society, that says a lot about who we are. And he had this idea that you could think about um, about creating societies behind a veil of ignorance. If you had no idea who, who you would end up being in that society, you could end up being handicapped, you know, disabled, young, you know, from a marginal group, whatever it is, if you could end up being the least of the person in that society, how would you design the rules for, for that society? And it might be that you would have more of an interest in justice for everyone. Um, and so there's some really interesting ideas about what that society would look like and how that society should be designed. Um, and Rawls' um, ideas run into other problems, you know, of how do we get this to happen? What do we do in, with uh, totalitarian regimes? There were lots of, you know, later in his life, he, he worked on, um, on foreign policy questions. There's an enormous, and human, right, human rights problems. Um, there's an enormous amount that, that complicates each of these ideas. But I would say that sort of knowing about all these different lenses can give us a way to think reflectively about the question itself. And sometimes just literally taking the time and energy to think about the question as an ethical question will change our answer. Um, and then there are some other sort of shortcut tests in the sense of, you know, shorthand kinds of things like um, the golden rule is a maxim, you know, um, do unto others as you would have done unto you. There are versions of that in, in a lot of different religions and religious traditions. Uh, but that's the idea behind that one is to have empathy, to think about what it would feel like to be on the receiving end of, of whatever action you're contemplating. Another one is to think about, okay, well, if do I want whatever action I'm about to take to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal of the New York Times, right? Am I comfortable? Is there something that's making me queasy about disclosure in this situation? If there's something that's that you don't feel comfortable having disclosed about this situation, then maybe there's an ethical dimension here that really needs to be addressed. So all these different techniques get us to slow down, to think about things. And one of the nice things about having this discussion is just slowing down and identifying something as an ethical question is a huge part of the battle because we often know what to do. And the real challenge is getting us to do it. <laughs> the real challenge is getting us to act on our ethics. So I really like the, 
the Dr. Gentile's, you know, giving voice to values system, which we talked about earlier, but but some other techniques in which we actually we 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 get to actually acting on what we know is right. Because often it's not actually the tangle of, you know, angels dancing on the pin to figure out what's right. We, we know what we're supposed to do. We know what our grandmother would have us do. We know what the people who we respect in society would have us do. And we know we should do it. The problem is, how do we do that? How do we speak truth without getting fired? How do we, um, how do we navigate these tangles of issues where we may be inside a system or have, you know, pressure and incentives or otherwise not feel able to speak. And so a lot of the book has to do with uh, designing an ethical culture, designing a, a system in which people are able to speak, because that's also really good for management. That's your early warning sign. That's your sign to be able to get ahead of all these disasters before they happen, to know what's going on, to realize what the pressures are at the different levels of the organization that are are frankly creating misconduct. You're so right that we are almost always know what to do and it's just about doing it. And there's also this element of stepping just a little bit away from what you know is right and then adjusting to it and thinking it's normal and then stepping a little away and then a little away and you kind of don't even notice but you're over a gray, gray line and then you're over a black line. What advice would you give to our listeners and viewers on how do they don't go towards that gray line? How do you stop the ethical slide, right? How do you, how do you get back to the person that you want to see in the mirror at the end of the day? Because one of the most toxic things for our health is being disgusted ourselves. Like literally, you know, there's all this research on, on you know, um, diseases and health behaviors. And it's, it's really toxic not to be able to look at yourself in the mirror, not to be happy with who you are at the end of the day. And you can find yourself pulled there by all kinds of pressures. You know, this is the this is the way it works at my job. This is what I had to do to get ahead. Whatever the rationalizations are, you don't want to find yourself disgusted with who you are at the end of the day. Because also that you know, if you're disgusted with yourself, it's hard to love other people. It's hard to let them love you. It, it ripples through everything. And you just see people with wreckage of lives um, at the end of the day and their own health suffers. So, so how do we check this? How do we keep ourselves from going there? And I would say there are a couple of different things. Um, first, calling ethical questions is ethical questions, not letting yourself hide behind euphemisms. You know, if you, what you're doing is impacting people, call it people, not, you know, which it's transfer, transferred. <laughs> um, I think that's a big one, bringing the humanity back into it. I think being willing to talk to other people who you respect about what you're actually doing. If, you, you know, that test about would I, would I like to see that what I'm doing on the front pages of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? Am I okay going home and telling grandma or my mom or who, you know, whoever you respect? what I have done, really what I've done, not the, not the gloss sugar-coated version, but what I do, is that, a, am I, does that feel right to me? Um, and if it doesn't, start making changes, right? Um, and this is not pie in the sky. This is literally a matter of health and reputation and well-being and professional progress and career. Um, I'd say it's important, you know, some people have talked about having an eth a board of ethical advisors, you know, people around you, either um, 
you know, I, I wouldn't say at your company, but, you know, they could be in, in a similar industry or, or older than you or mentors or younger or whoever it is that you trust and you're willing to talk to about what's really going on. Because not only will that help you get a sense of, you know, have I drifted far from where I wanted to be because these people have known me for a while, but also you may need creative problem solving. You may, you may have found that you're in this situation because you've, you've allowed yourself to be backed into it slowly somehow. And it may be a process of figuring out how to back back out. <laughs> Wait a minute, okay, I don't wanna quit my job and move to Timbuktu, but maybe what I can do is, you know, think about taking on more work from another division. I like that work better, right? You know, whatever it is, you, you, you can position yourself and, and find a path toward something that better comports with your ethics. And, and maybe it does mean quitting the company and, and working for different people who, who think about the job that they do differently. It's very much, you know, institutions are just people and organizations are just, you know, who you work with and, and, and the goals that you, you know, are, are bringing as an organization to bear. And those, those may not comport with who you are and who you want to be. And so you may have to change organizations, but there are a lot of different things that you can do before you get there. And so thinking about that, having these conversations, as we were talking about that giving voice to values conversations and the other conversations about changing the conditions that you find yourself in where you are first and then moving out, that's really powerful. Um, there are a whole bunch of different things you can do. Um, I would say people know that they are, especially if you find yourself bifurcating your personality, where you're one person at home and you're another person in the professional context, that feels very uncomfortable. That 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 is untenable. You'll get, you'll know that you're that you're splitting yourself apart, and you do see serious psychological distress start to start to take place. Um, that's not healthy for the vast majority of people. And in fact, you may see, and so a really interesting pattern in a lot of these business ethics problems is actually someone who's doing what's called moral licensing, where what they've done is that they, in their personal life, they're maybe a particularly religious person or a particularly big philanthropist or a particularly big something else to justify the other side of the ledger, right? I don't think it's an accident that the Sackler family, which, you know, was behind the Purdue Pharma, you know, opiate scandal, saw themselves as huge philanthropists were giving a lot of money away. You know, they wanted that acclaim. They wanted that social acceptance exactly because <laughs> there was this very dark guidance source to the money. It's very interesting. People want to feel good about themselves. And they will try to feel good about themselves even if they have to engage in this game of the of the balancing the moral ledger. And you'll start to see both sides get more extreme. Um, it is very interesting how many very significant white collar criminals are actually express themselves as particularly religious or moral people in some way where they're really involved in the community or really film talk or whatever it is. And, it's, and you'll see that disconnect going on um, because they know that they're under tension. Their very identity is under tension because they don't like this other side of themselves, this, this thing that they are doing over on the professional side, and they may overly compensate it for for it on this other side. It's interesting. I don't. I. I. I don't think it's a surprise to people that this stuff is happening. I. I. I think maybe people slide into it farther than they realize, but I think the people who are there know they're there too. And maybe they have a wake-up call at some point where they have to re-examine their lives and re-examine what, what's going on, but they they haven't gotten there overnight and they haven't been 
they haven't been wrestling with this. You know, they've been wrestling with this in pieces as they go along too. What do you think someone can do to ensure they do not slide? So I know you, you spoke a lot about it now, but I'm thinking maybe they can have certain, maybe they can borrow from different schools of thought that you mentioned to us and having rules that they never break, some guardrails. What kind of guardrails they can put for themselves? Well, I think every single one of the philosophies that, that we're talking about is in some way attempting to do that. Right. Because if you think about ethics virtue, you're thinking about who is an ethical person, who do I respect, who do I admire, who do I want to be. Right. And if that's too far out of whack with who you are, then, you know, you have this work to do. Right. So you could do it that way. Communitarianism, the same way. If you do not feel connected and really tied and, you know, and have those those deep relationships with your community such that you know, you're connecting with your grandparents and you're connecting with the things that the, the institutions and things that you think are important. That's another sign that you're out of whack. I think that I think, you know, just going through this list, every single one of them, you know, if 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 cost benefit rationale, I think that there's a way that you could use that positively. Wow, I'm in this job and I'm making a lot of money. But you know, that may be the benefit The the cost is I can't look myself in the mirror and I have all these health problems and I'm no longer talking to my family and blah, blah, blah. Okay. That's, a, that's the cost that's too high. Right. I mean, so you could, you could say that all of these things, um, rights, duties, rationales, absolutely categorical imperative. I'm breaking every line. I'm lying. I'm cheating. I'm stealing. I'm doing these things, which are not okay. Right. Objectively not okay. Um, I have crossed those lines. Distributive justice. I'm cr I'm creating the system that I wouldn't want to be in. I wouldn't, you know, I think all, you know, or even the golden rule. I, I wouldn't want other people treating me this way. Or, you know, I don't like the way I don't like what I'm doing. If I saw this on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, I would check my behavior. Right. There are there are all these moments in which each one of these techniques, what it does is it activates your your sense of ethics. Your, it calls out moral questions as moral questions and asks you to reflect on them as moral questions, not through the rationalizations of a business necessity or whatever I have to do today or whatever you know, my boss needs me to do. But no, is this who I am? Is this who I want to be? Is this how I want to act? Is this the contribution I want to make? Is this, you know, all of those bigger questions, giving, giving yourself a chance to take that breath ask those questions and answer them fairly for yourself are all moments of, of they're all turning points. They're all moments in your life in which you decide who you are. And, and at every point, there's an old saying that your habits are who you are, what you do every day with your time is who you are. And so these are the questions saying, are you using your time, your gifts, your talents for what you want to be using them for? Is this who you are? This is who you've become, given how you've spent your time of the choices you've made. Is this who you want to be? Is this who you will be? And you have that choice going forward. Always. I love it, GS. Thank you. I think it will be incredibly helpful. I wanted to ask you, over the last, let's say even over your entire career, but maybe especially over the last few years, where there's some kind of aha moments, realizations that made you look at business ethics differently in some way? I think the research about how little we understand of this, uh, the research about 
how people find themselves in these situations without necessarily realizing that they're in these situations. So I think there are really two pieces to this. And at every point we've been talking about an individual experience, and then we can talk about a, an organizational experience. The individual experience is perhaps being, you know, working in the capacity of a white collar defense attorney and talking to white collar criminal defendants about taking a plea, for example. And you'll have this tortured moment where the white collar defendant will say, yes, I did this, this, and this, but I'm not a criminal. And you'll say, well, but you did this, this, and this. <laughs> you, by definition, that makes you a criminal. So then you should take this plea, right? Because this is actually a really good solution going forward. And they can't make that connection. But, you know, yes, I did this and this, but I'm not a criminal. I'm a member of society. I'm a father. I'm a, you know, member of my church, synagogue, mosque, whatever it is. You know, I'm in the community. I this, I that, I the next. Yes, but you did X, Y, and Z. And that's it, this idea of labeling their behavior as criminal, it's exactly what you were talking about. If they have crossed that line and they were speeding by so fast that they didn't see the line and didn't think about it. And it, yes, of course, in the criminal sense, it was a conscious decision. Nobody put a gun to their head. Nobody, you know, they weren't, you know, incapacitated mentally somehow at that moment. But in the sense of if, if somebody had been standing at that juncture and said, look, if you take this fork, you will be a criminal and you take this fork and you will be, you know, stay a productive member of society who has no criminal record and no criminal behavior, you know that they would have taken the fork that was the labeled non-criminal behavior, but they never labeled that in their mind. They just got lost in the situation and did the extension of whatever behavior they had been on before. That ethical slide went right there. And, and it's really sad because you want people to have more agency than that. But I also want to call this out as saying, now that we know that pattern exists and we know that, you know, you do X, Y, and Z, you will be a criminal, start thinking harder about X, Y, and Z, right? Those are moments of learning. Those are moments of taking your power back and making your decisions so that you don't have that terrible struggle, that terrible disconnect of, yes, I did all those things, but I'm not a criminal. Oh, wait a minute, I am, right? That's a terrible moment. That, that, that's a failure of every ethical check and every moment of ethical decision-making that should have been present, but wasn't, was rationalized away. And it comes and finds people. So it's absolutely, it was a, it's a terrible situation to sit in conference rooms with people like that and have them go through that. And it's too late. It's too late by then. So, so I'd say, you know, wake up. Don't let it be too late. <laughs> right? You have now. You have that person that you're, you have to see in the mirror. That person who is doing whatever that person is doing. Make sure that those moments count. Make sure that those decisions are the good ones that you want to have made. And in certainly organizations, we see the same kind of ethical slide happening, maybe less consciously because they don't realize how their garden has gotten out of control. Right? We've talked about ethics is about tending a garden and you will grow things. <laughs> Make sure that they are what you want to grow and that those are, those are really the things that you have planted and continue to cultivate and it's going well. Because you also see CEOs and you know 
people managing major organizations start to feel like, oh my goodness, these things are sprouting left and right. I'm out of control. This is now spinning. There are all these weeds everywhere and everything's contaminated. Everything's rotten. Was it a couple of rotten apples that contaminated everything? And the answer is no. No, it's the whole management, you know, it's not just rotten apples and bad barrels. It's the management of the orchard. <laughs> you manage the orchard so that you were not looking for these things. You were not on top of them early. They let they spread, they metastasized, they became normalized, they became part of your culture. They they they're they're now every part of your organization. And you know, it's coming home to roost. And that's terrifying. That's a terrifying situation for managers to find themselves in. But again, kind of like the, the individual situation, they didn't get there overnight. They didn't get there overnight. They blew through warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. And now this is, you know, damage control 24 seven and you don't have the bandwidth to start managing your organization the way that you want to. You don't have the bandwidth to think about innovation and research and development and looking forward and where you wanna be the next year. You're dealing with emergency after emergency after emergency and you don't even know where the next one's coming from, right? I would much rather not be in that situation. I would much rather say, this is a moment to take control. This is a moment to chart your path and make those conscious decisions back there where you could have done something about it. Listen to people, figure out that this was what, go, what was going on. You know, Take those early warning signs, engage the ethics of your employees so that they feel comfortable talking to you. One of the things, um, the big takeaways I would say for managers are to, engage, to make sure that they create psychological safety and that people can speak up and tell them this stuff early. Right. If you if you create this situation where everybody's terrified, they think that they're in tremendous pressure, they have to cut corners to make your quotas, they can't tell you what's really going on in your company, this is what's gonna happen. It's gonna snowball. And also you lose your best people. I will say, you know, your star performers are gonna leave. People vote with their feet. I mean, the number one reason why people say they leave jobs often is, is their boss. And it's because they see things on the job that don't make them comfortable. And if you see high turnover someplace, go figure out what's going on. You know, there's something that's not ethically right, whether that's an abusive boss, whether there's something, you know, there's whether people are being asked to do something that they're uncomfortable, people leave, people get out of these situations. You're not getting your best people. You're not getting the best talent. You're not getting the innovation that you want. And you, you've created a situation within the organization where they don't have the voice to tell you what's happening. And so you're not, you know, you're presiding over a ship that's already going off the waterfall, right? That's, that's really dangerous. You've got to be in there early. You got to get your best from people. You got to get good performers to feel comfortable having these conversations, to call ethics as ethics, be willing to stay, be willing to invest, feel good about where they work, feel good about the, the what they're putting their time, energy, talents toward, you know, feel that as a positive purpose, as a, as a positive reason to come to your organization. You know, there are all kinds of good benefits from this, right? People will be, will willing, will be willing to work for you harder and for less money. You know, <laughs> they'll, they'll give their time and energy. They'll come up with that innovation in the chart because they take it home and they think, wow, I really like what I do and I like who I work with and I like the mission that I'm on and I'm going to try and bring this extra piece of myself. I'm, you know, management schools are obsessed with how do we get that out of people? How do we get them to 
that employee engagement, get them not just punching the clock. And this ethical question is a huge part of it. Feeling good about where you work, feeling good about the contribution you're making, feeling good about the organization and what it means and what it does and how you're heard and, and, and watching the reaction when you do report ethical misconduct. What happens? Something done about it? Is there retaliation? Is there something like that tells you everything you need to know about an organization right there. Not only that, but everybody who's watching that situation now knows what's really going on in that organization. And employees are incredibly sensitive to hypocrisy, especially millennials. But, but they, I will say this is a huge issue for millennials. And part of the frustration that many managers, you know, will, will express about managing millennials is, oh my goodness, they're so sensitive. Well, they're not willing to put up with a lot of things that the other generations were willing to put up with. And they really are sensitive to issues of hypocrisy. So these managing the ethics part of it is also managing for this whole other generation and getting the best out of their talents and getting, you know, they are the future. They're, they're you know, we're looking in the middle of a $40 trillion transfer of assets to millennials. I mean, they are your customers and they are your employees. And now they're your investors too. They're everywhere around you. You have to deal with them. <laughs> So, <laughs> so this is a big part of it too, your ethics. That is very true. JS, thank you so much. This is incredibly valuable discussion. What are the lessons you want our listeners and viewers to walk away with? Yeah. Well, I would say a way to summarize what we've been talking about. If you were to talk about the five actionable steps that listeners can take tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. to really implement what we've talked about and and come up with an action plan i would say 8 a.m tomorrow morning go into the office and start thinking about these five things one think about patterns in your workforce and work in patterns in your workplace right it's not just about specific people but really about incentive systems how they're set up and why you may be seeing repeat behavior um there's more going on there and i'd say two think about psychological safety think about um making sure that your workplace is the kind of place in which you can really hear what's going on and people feel safe telling you what's really going on so that you do have the tools to manage this stuff. It doesn't just blindside you. You can manage it. You can know about these things early. I would say three, designing a speak-up culture to solicit information early, actually actively try to get this information. This is a competitive advantage. This is how you keep your company for really performing and performing for the long-term. This is how you get people, star people to come and to stay. I would say four, think about the goals that you set and how those goals are enforced. So not just compliance systems meeting, say quotas, but really thinking about behavior, who we are, what kind of behavior we want. This, this is who we are, this is what we represent. This is how, are your systems set up to get that from people, to reward them for that? What are the messages that you're putting out and what, how are you, telling people on the front lines that you want them to act. I would say five, um, be open to the conversation and language of ethics. It's really important that people feel comfortable bringing, using this language, and that this language becomes part of the organization and the organization owns it. No, I'll start right where, I mean, I'll finish right where we started, which is to say that ethics should be something everyone owns. There's no 
there's no corner on ethics, right? There's no just, oh, we have an ethics officer, the ethics officer will deal with all our ethics. <laughs> Absolutely not a massive disaster about to happen. Ethics has to be infused in every piece of everything so that your people own it and that they understand that they own it and that they they feel protective of it and they report these things and that they talk to you about it. And so that's changing the conversation, changing the way that language is used from the top of the C-suite right down to the production floor. You know, that's got to be heard, that language of ethics, it's got to be part of it. And even if you use these other languages and rationales, you know, even if you it comes across in cost-benefit rationales, well, yeah, that's one way to describe it. And losing your reputation and 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 all the costs of not performing in an ethical way, we can actually line them up. But there are all these other ways to describe what's going on and what that benefit is. And it's a really tangible benefit. We do see, I want to end with this, that, that the numbers really bear this out. The companies that have good ethics and compliance systems that really permeate all the way through the company, they outperform other companies and they do so year in, year out by two to three percentage points minimum every year. That is major growth. That is some major um, contribution. That is a major profit right there um, in terms of, you know, that's a company that other people want to invest in. That's a company that other people want to work for. That's a company that other people want to sell to and do business with and want to be engaged with. That's a company which is going to stand out. And, and, and so ethics can be a competitive advantage. Managing and getting this done right is spectacular. It, and it's not easy. It's hard. It's hard and it takes work. And you can't abdicate it. <laughs> you got to keep tending the garden. You got to plant the garden, grow the garden, tend the garden, right? But wow, does it reap profits? Wow, does it bloom? Wow, is that a great company? Wow, do you set the standard for your peers and they will be running to catch up with you? And they won't even know what the secret sauce is, but it's so basic and people will want to work with you for you you know, invest in you and all the rest of it. They'll come running to this stuff. And honestly, this 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 description of online gaming where we watch people without knowing, without them knowing that we're watching them, it shows that. It shows that again and again and again. It's a great competitive strategy. It is. And it is a great way to contribute to the world. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about yourself as all of that time that you put in the world and things that you do, this is a great way to spend your time. This is a great way. This is a great life. This is a really good life to be proud of at the end of it and at any point during it. Absolutely. And all your employees will feel that way. And all the people who do business with you will feel that way. And that is a great way to grow something in the world. This is a great place to end this episode. Before we do that, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? And can you please share with us two, three books? Doesn't have to be on business ethics, can be on business ethics that you feel where the most important books you have ever read for your life? There are a lot of them. <laughs> there are a lot of them. I will say I read really widely. And I, I think there's a lot of truth coming from a lot of places. And, I, and one of the things, just like we've talked about with these different um, philosophical bases for ethical behavior, I think a lot of times 
people are coming in at the truth from different angles and they're all finding pieces of the truth. And so I would say, I read very broadly and I would recommend that to people. I, I don't wanna channel them toward any one book or any particular book. In terms of a very specific how-to guide, I would send them um, to Mary Gentile's Giving Voice to Values materials. I would also say that those are available for free um, in sort of snippet cartoon form, which is about the easiest way to digest it possible, but, you know, good quality um, through the University of Texas uh, Macomb School, their business school in Austin. Um, they have something that's called uh, Ethics Unwrapped, which is a, a little series of videos. Um, each one is very short. They're very, very helpful techniques. And as we're talking strategy skills, I would send people to those as great ways to start having some difficult conversations, great ways to make sure that you can speak truth to power without getting fired, right? We need our most ethical people within organizations. We need them promoted within organizations and leading these organizations and thinking about them. And so um, I really like giving people with these questions, those kinds of tools, definitely. Um, I'd say, you know, whatever book of ethical philosophy or or moral touchstone is important to you. So whether it's the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, whatever it is that you that that speaks to you and will will activate that moral reasoning for you to have that close at hand. It may not be a religious book. It may be, you know, things I learned in kindergarten or whatever it is that is the, the book that awakens those kinds of moral reasoning questions for you and, and make sure that you approach things that are ethical questions as ethical questions and call those front and center. Um, other good books, wow, there's some really great books. Um, Anne Tenbrensel and Max Bazeman wrote, uh, Blind Spots, great book. Um, Jeff Pfeffer wrote uh, Dying for a Paycheck, which is, you know, a lot of the conditions in the modern world. He wrote many other books. Um, Caldini wrote Influence. I mean, um, Thaler and Sunstein wrote Nudges. You know, <laughs> there's so many books about, you know, how to design, how to architect, how to think about people's behavior and why they do the things they do. But I would also say, so the, our book, um, which, you know, I mentioned my co-author, Lynn Stout, the late Lynn Stout, um, she wrote the shareholder value myth and she wrote Cultivating Conscience, How Good Laws Make Good People. So she's very interested in these issues. Um, our book with the Oxford University Press is uh, Business Ethics, What Everyone Needs to Know. It has an appendix to it. So it's written in short question and answer format. So really, if you have a question, you can go to that question. And then if you would like to, you can go to another question, another question and just build organically as you know, it's not a book that you have to read from cover to cover. But it's it's there as a guide for, for anyone who's got these kinds of burning issues. And just to make sure that these issues are real issues and that you, you know, do the moral engagement to stay, to stay, um, to keep them front and center as moral questions. Um, but there's a list of resources in the back. The appendix is, um, has got a lot of additional materials that, that uh, people may find helpful, especially as they're tackling specific questions and trying to figure out what to do. I mean, certainly strategy skills, we're thinking about how do we operationalize this? How do we, what's our step? how do we make this happen? What do we do? What do we do tomorrow at 8 a.m.? What do we do now before dinner, right? <laughs> what do we do? What do we do? And this is a, you know, 
lots of strategies of, of ways to approach things, things, um, ways to manifest um, and change, you know, manifest the concerns you have, change the world around you. But I would say it starts with that live question. It starts with that live ethical engagement and making sure that you're asking that question first. Thank you, JS, so much. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. And it's been my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, again, for tuning in. My guest today, again, has been J.S. Nelson. Make sure to check out J.S. Nelson's book. It's called Business Ethics, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I'll see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.